If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's 1846, and 18-year-old newlywed Susan McGoffin makes her first journey down the Santa Fe Trail on family business. South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Welcome to Uncommon History of the South, where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, it's been a couple weeks since we've uh, released a podcast. Yes. So uh, what's been going on with your build? Well, we're ready to go. Uh, We are uh, uh, running really well. I've got everything pretty much done. Uh, I'm going to do an upgrade on the transmission uh, coming up here in the next couple weeks if uh, the guy that's building one for me. And I didn't get a chance to tell you, Brian, but uh, I talked with uh, some people yesterday, and I'm hoping that uh, first of next year it will be going around the track at Indianapolis. Awesome. Yeah, we got, you- got we got a way of, uh, of doing that, and we're in the process right now of getting that uh, staged. So we'll probably put a video up of old egghead here going around the track at Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Have you received any speeding tickets yet? No, it ain't going to happen. I don't think <laughs> – I might get this new transmission. I might be able to do a 45 and a 35, but I, I haven't gotten there yet. Hey, also one other thing. Um, you talked about we may be doing our first, I don't know, live podcast on location. Uh-huh. You want to talk just a little bit about that? Then before – then the next couple podcasts, we'll, we'll we'll give everybody dates and times. And Yeah, well, you know, I've kicked around some different ideas, and uh, I, I – uh, I thought maybe um, we might want to do something with the gorillas, um, this you know, uh, with Quantrail, and and uh, you know we could do some locations, put it on Facebook, some photographs and things. Um, we also had talked about maybe doing something with Daniel Boone again, 
and with our Fred, uh, friend uh, Ted Franklin Ballou. So we may want to go over and we may do a podcast on the archaeology of the original uh, Boonesboro, okay. which I think would be a good one. And we've and also talked about the winery, going and doing a, a, yes, an episode there. You yes, uh, I have some friends that we were over there Sunday. Which at, winery uh, is it? It's a 1922 winery in Nicholsville, Kentucky. Okay. And uh, we have talked with them possibly of doing a podcast there. So, and we'll learn about wine history and uh, a little bit about how they make their product. And uh, it's a a really neat uh, education for me because I know very little about wine. Uh, Make no bones about it. But uh, we had our car show over there Sunday, and I got to meet with these folks. And they're really nice people. And we had talked before. And we'll probably talk again, so that might be another option for us. Okay, so that, that may be an opportunity if people would like to come and see what we do behind the scenes. Not that it's that interesting, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, they may want to come and uh, you know kind of watch, get, kind of yeah. get the scoop on the podcast or there something. You go. The next episode, there you go. So, what's going on today in Kentucky, or what went on today in Kentucky history? Well, I got two days I want to do. Uh, I want to do July twenty eighth, and in 1973, Lee Majors married. Farrah Fawcett. Now, Lee Majors has a connection here, right? Central Kentucky? Yes. He grew up in Middlesboro, Kentucky. He attended Eastern Kentucky University. Oh, so we're alumni together? Yes. Uh, and in 1976, he and Farrah made history being the first husband and wife to star simultaneously in a, in a uh, separate top-rated television shows. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man, and she was in... You Charlie's, know, Angels. Charlie's Angels. Both of those go. were two of my favorite shows growing up. I'm telling you. And, you know, I was probably about 10 years old when the uh, $6 million man was popular on TV. Right. And for Christmas, I, I received the action figure, the spaceship. I mean, I was $6 million man crazy. Well, if Mama would have let me, I would have had Charlie's Angels poster in my bedroom. And, but that, and I it, had the famous poster. No, I, that, I, that wasn't good. No. I had the famous poster of she Fair Fawcett. I'll no, have to admit no, that. She so. wouldn't let me have that. So. <laughs> And also, July 29th, 1826, the Kentucky Association for Improvement of the Breeds Stocks was organized at Keene's Tavern in Lexington. Sounds boring, doesn't it? But they purchased a track and began a long career as one of the most noted racetracks in the U.S. In 1935, the racetrack went out of business, and the two iron gate posts with K.A. on them were placed at the entrance of the Keeneland Racetrack. Wow. So a little horse history here. Yeah. A little horse history. All right, so what are we going to be talking about tonight? Uh, well, this is one that I, it kind of ties in with our last podcast. Uh, we talked about the Alamo and the history of our the Southwest. And um, so this, this, is a, uh, an, this is a book that has been published about a diary. The lady's name was Susan Shelby McGoffin, and she ha- she went west on the Santa Fe Trail, and was which was very unusual for a, for its time, which when they took this trip was 1846. Wow! And it was a dangerous trip, and we're going to learn a lot about that. But she kept a daily diary of her trip, and uh, it is a fascinating ring for those who have an interest in Western history, um, Southern history. Well, anytime you can read a woman's diary, it's got to be interesting. Well, you know, they, they there was a lot of diaries done. It was fashionable, but not any women traveled the Santa Fe Trail at this time. 
And she was traveling from Harrisburg. Is that Mercer County? Well, she was originally from Harrisburg. We'll get into that, okay. her family genealogy and everything. But, uh, yes, I mean, she she was 18 years old. Wow. So uh, let's talk a little bit, Brian, about the Santa Fe Trail uh, so people kind of familiarize with it. Uh, I am, am by no means an expert on this uh, Western history or any don't claim to be expert on any history, to tell you the truth, but uh, the Santa Fe Trail started in 18 and 21, and it lasted till about 1846, which is, was the outbreak of the of the Mexican War. Now there was trade that went on after that, but you got to understand steamships and things like that, uh, and railroads at some point overtake this wagon trains going west. See, right. So it started in central Missouri, around Independence in that area. There was actually two tracks. It's about 900 miles from central Missouri to Santa Fe, okay? So there's there's a northern route, um, and then there's a, there was a southern route, and the southern route, I think, cut off almost like 100 miles of it. So uh, most people uh, went the southern route after it became a little better known. Now, would this have been going through Indian territory, oh, hostile yes. territory? Oh, yes. mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it started with trade with the Plains Indians, who in turn traded with the Mexicans or the Spanish colonial Spanish at that time. And that was before Mexico was Mexico. So it started with that. And then the settlers in Texas, you know, that was offered land by the Mexican government to come there and to settle before Santa Ana was a dictator. You know, they, they had actually wanted people to come and settle that land. So this trade had, had started with the Spanish colonists in New Mexico and then continued on up until uh, the Mexican War. And how much was America involved in that time with Mexico and formation of their government and, and everything? Well, it's, uh, uh, see, what I've always thought of, and I, again, I'm not an expert in this, so I'm sure that some of our listeners may know as much or more about this than I do, but what, what I understand, Spain never wanted Mexico to develop industrial a lot of industrial resources. They didn't want, they had learned a lesson from Britain and America, Great Britain, and and, and we became too powerful and became too independent. And they wanted Mexico to depend on the mainland of Spain, so they didn't want them to become too industrialized. So they wanted them to remain as serfs. Yes, they were suppressing, yes. Well, they wanted the the country for a lot of the natural resources and so forth. Uh, So anyway, they lost control of it eventually as they, uh, you know, there's an ocean apart. You can't control a country no. from an ocean apart like that. So they uh, they eventually lost that. And um, so at one point, Spain declared trade with Native Americans and Texans illegal. They did not want them to build up their economy. So that's, that's one of the reasons that you can understand why Mexico de- declared independence in 1821. And when they did that, that kind of opened the door then for the Americans to really come on. And that's what... That's why it started in 1821, the the real trade. William uh, Becknell uh, from Missouri, he started the first trade route, as as we think, um, and he he established the mountain route. But he found, like I said, he found a better route called the Cimarron route, which was about a hundred miles closer. Uh, in 1845, by the way, right before her trip, uh, the United States voted to annex what is now present day. Uh, Texas and part of New Mexico. Okay. So anyway, these the two families that are involved here are very prominent in Kentucky history. Uh, the McGoffin family. It's real interesting, uh, Brian. The McGoffins 
were must have been very uh, hardworking, uh, very industrious people. Uh, the senior Barai McGoffin uh, came from County Down, Ireland, and and he didn't get into into Kentucky till the late seventeen eighties or nineties. Wow. And so uh, he married Jane McAfee, who was Samuel McAfee, the McAfee Station, one of the early pioneer families in Kentucky, well-known. He married uh, his daughter, Jane. And they had several boys. They had, let's see, one, two, three, four, five boys. Uh, One son, Bariah Jr., became governor of Kentucky during the Civil War, right before the Civil War. Samuel, William, James, and John. John was a physician, well-noted physician later in St. Louis. He had three daughters, Jane, Hannah, and Sarah. Now they may have been have successful too, but I do not know uh, what they. You know, I just don't have any record of what who they married or how their life uh, right. evolved. They also had another son I left out named Ebenezer. So he had you know several boys here. Um, the Shelby family, who uh, Susan Shelby's family, her grandfather was Isaac Shelby, which was the first governor of Kentucky, uh, Revolutionary War War of eighteen twelve hero. Her father was named also Isaac Shelby. I assume it was Isaac Shelby Jr. Um, and she was born in Arcadia in near uh, Danville, Kentucky, which is actually near uh, Shelby City and Junction City, Kentucky. And by the way, this house is still standing. Okay. The farm and the place is still there. Uh, it was She was born in uh, July the 30th, 1827. So this is almost her birthday would be, what, tomorrow? I think today's the 29th. 29th, yeah. Yeah, tomorrow. tomorrow's would be her birthday. Her sister married Bariah McGoffin's. Uh, her sister, I think her Anne, married Bariah McGoffin, her, her husband's brother. So they were double cousins. And, and, uh, she gave birth in her life to two sons who both tragically died in childhood, one, one in birth, one a little later. But she had two daughters that lived. Uh, she died in 1855, and she was 34 years old. So she didn't live a long time. Um, and, and, and obviously she lived hard. Now, she married Samuel McGoffin in 1845. She was 18 years old, and he was 45 years old, 27 years <laughs> older than her. Sugar daddy. It seems to be a – now, and she loved him very dearly. Uh, it's very obvious in her journal that she really, really loved him. It was, it's, this is not only a story about adventure – and history it's also a love story and uh it's it's a real interesting interesting mix here um their honeymoon uh would you like to know where they went on their honeymoon yeah now where would you think uh, in harrisburg kentucky if you were married say in in uh, 1845 where do you think you'd go on your honeymoon i bet they came to danville no (laughs) 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 they actually uh took a steamship to philadelphia and to new york oh okay and they stayed six months. Wow! In the Northeast, before then they made their way to St. Louis, which I'm sure down the river, and there from there out to Independence, where they prepared for their adventure to Santa Fe. Now she had never been west. Um, I don't think she lived a sheltered life. She was a very um, there was a prominent families, but I don't think they lived a sheltered life. I think she was used to hard work. I think. That was a trait uh, of those folks and um, and of the time, you know. Um, now, privileged, obviously, yes. She had servants. She uh, we're going to talk about how <laughs> how she lived here in a minute, but uh, 
large wagons. Some of these wagons is different than we envision this to be. Um, in some ways, it is what we see, like through in movies and things. But then these wagons had the freight wagons were huge. So they weren't just a common buckboard wagon. Oh no, 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 no. These were like forty foot long with six foot tall wheels. Is that what they refer to as schooners? Freight wagons. Freight wagons. Okay. Yeah. Well, schooner might be a term too. Brian, I'm not familiar with it, but uh, I've heard that, but I don't know exactly what that is. But she called them freight wagons. So these things were huge. Now, we're talking a million-dollar trade going on here. This is serious business. This isn't a play. I mean, these folks had been doing this for a long time. And matter of fact, they'd been doing it for 20 years before she went. Wow. So they were very familiar with what they were up against. Uh, she wasn't, but her husband and his family, they were very accustomed to it. Um the wagons were very slow. They had fourteen. They started with fourteen big wagons, six yoke of oxen each. Can you imagine that? That's yeah. Uh, and they had a baggage wagon just to haul their baggage. Uh, then they had wagons for personal use, and they had about twenty men that kept everything going. And she had one servant named Jane, and she had her dog with her. Uh, and we'll talk about more about some of that later. But uh, she she. Uh, she really admired and respected her husband, and she called him my Alma, M-I-A-L-M-A, which hmm. means my soul. And, and all through her diary, she referred to him as my Alma instead of by his name most of the time. Hmm. I thought that was real interesting. Um, on their way, uh, as they got started, um, they would it, – it, they, she talked about things, and I'm, I'm and I'm hitting the high spots here, for sake of time. We have no way we can cover all of what she saw and all the things that, especially the latter part of the trip when the military was involved, and she saw some of that. And I thought that was probably the least interesting to people. So what I wanted to do was talk about what she talked about that surprised her. She stopped along the way, and they would talk with Indians. And they would meet, and they'd catch up on the local news. She said, <laughs> and, and 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 they would talk about uh, things being pretty bad, like at Pawnee Fork, and to be careful there because there was a couple tribes that were upset and were warrior type, and so forth. So the Indians not only they were afraid of them, some of the tribes, but some of the tribes were very friendly. Uh, she talked about birds and wildlife. Uh, mentions a lot about that in her in her in her diary. Uh, she talks about having the first Sabbath, the first Sunday, being away from civilization. She's used to going to church. Mm -hmm. She was a woman of very deep faith, by the way. Uh, the heat really was bad for her and the animals. We'll talk more about that. She, she just, this is not an easy trip. Uh, they started about six o'clock in the morning and they would stop about 1130 and they would, uh, rest for a few hours and then about three o'clock four o'clock they'd start out again and they'd go to seven or eight o'clock and she said on a good day they could average about 10 miles a day oh my goodness so very slow going well you're pulling oxen and mules and sometimes i guess if you envision just the prairie being nice and flat they probably did better than that but a lot of the places they went they did not do very well. They, they, they couldn't make any time. Um, she talked about the U.S. Dragoons escorting them. About 70 in number would come. And see, these her family was well-connected. 
and K and and uh, we're going to talk about her brother James here in a few minutes. But they they were well connected, and they were they knew how to to get help. Uh, they knew how to get an escort through part of their trip. They had government escort. The bandits and the Indians were really bad, and so with twenty men, all of them armed, you was a pretty formidable force. But there was times when the Indians would outnumber you, oh, so yeah. you needed help. Um, she talked of wild roses and flowers on the plains, which may be a little boring to some people, but it's 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 again an insight into how her mind worked and what what she valued and wanted to communicate to people. She talked about picking raspberries and gooseberries and making pies, uh, but some of the worst part of her trip was. You know what she complained about probably more than – there was two things, Brian, that, that she complained about more, I think, than anything when I read her diary. You know what they were? I'd say the heat would be – I don't know, the heat. Well, the heat was certainly one of them, but the mosquitoes and the storms. The mosquitoes were absolutely horrific. And she talked about it being just swarms – that torment the men and the animals. And she said they would put like a net down or something. You could hear them hitting it like rain. And she said it would just, uh, it was torment to the animals. And sometimes the animals would just get uh, plumbed down from, uh, you know, just the weariness of, of trying to fight off these swarms of, of mosquitoes. Um, she also talked about the storms being so, so dangerous. Uh, she talked about wolves serenading her to sleep. She said her dog, Ring, she called him Ring, uh, he would run out and chase him off the camp. <laughs> but she said it was a common occurrence for the wolves to come around and circle the camp. Uh, she said the oxen, believe it or not, traveled best in the rain. So I guess the mosquitoes wasn't tormenting them. There was no heat, and they were cool, and they were kept cool, so they traveled better, and so they wouldn't stop. Like if it was a rainy day and it wasn't storming bad, they could just make more time. And sometimes she said they'd even stop for, for supper or something. They'd just keep going because the oxen were doing so well and the mules, they didn't want to stop. They yeah. wanted to make as much ground as they could. She talked about the antelope that followed the wagon train. She said it was they were curious animals that you could – they would be traveling along and they'd look over and said there would be antelope walking along with them like they were wanting to go with them, she said. it's huh. amazing. Um, she said she met some Indians of the Kaw tribe, and they would – they were a traveling tribe at KAW. It was how they spelled it. They would travel with around these wagon trains and stop and eat supper with these people. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like they were just kind of, you know, mooching off of people, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> kind of like the uh, relatives that show up yeah. every time dinner's ready. Yeah, and she said they really didn't have an area or place that they stayed. They just kind of was a nomadic tribe. They just traveled around, but very friendly and very trustworthy. Uh Complained about fishing not going well. I, her husband evidently wasn't a very good fisherman because every time she mentioned they were fishing, they never caught anything. <laughs> she seemed to be kind of frustrated that he, he couldn't catch anything. Um, and about 145 miles out, um, which was several days, they got to a place called Council Grove. And th the reason I'm mentioning this is, and the reason she mentioned it in her diary, that was kind of like a boundary. And beyond that boundary then the hostile Indians and the uh, bandits were worse. And so you had to be very careful. 
She said they stopped for several days, molded bullets, and prepared themselves accordingly that they expected to have so to So they defense. prepared for war. Yes. Uh-huh. And they, they, from that point, didn't go out unarmed at all. You know, there was times probably during this other part of the trip that they didn't necessarily carry a gun all the time, but they did now. Um, they, uh, they circle the wagons at night, just like we seen in the movies, old Westerns, mm-hmm. you know, she said, yeah, it, she, they circle the wagons at night, made it much harder for anything to penetrate. Uh, I thought that was something just in the movies, but no, they, they actually did circle the wagons. Now you can imagine that many wagons and how big they were. That was a, that was a big fort. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, said it rained for days at times, no wood, no fires, no hot meals, no food. She said they would go as sometimes a day, a day and a half and not eat because they couldn't, couldn't even find, you know, they had to depend on shooting buffalo, antelope and deer and things along the way and rabbits and all kinds of other things. Um, she said they could travel about, uh, uh, one mile an hour average, so um, said some days they did not eat. They just couldn't couldn't make it work. Uh, another real uh, problem or challenge for them was crossing Rainswell Creeks and rivers. Oh, I can bet. No bridges, nowhere. You can imagine. Um, sometimes they had to wait for days for a river to lower the level so they could go on. So you didn't, you know, this wasn't. Uh, an exact science of knowing exactly how deep the river was. So you took some chances. Yeah. You know, uh, talks about a, <laughs> I got tickled there. She talked about this green little bug. She called a miniature alligator <laughs> that she was afraid of. Now, now here's a lady, you know, she's going on this trip. She's afraid of snakes, worms, bugs, and these little creatures she calls miniature alligators. <laughs> she said they totally just, in, in my words, creeped her out. It sounds like my wife and daughter. I think the only reason they keep me around sometimes is to climb ladders and kill bugs. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talks of storms, uh, lightning, uh, tremendous lightning storms. Um, she talks of wind and hail, uh, cold damp air at night. Again, we talked about mosquitoes swarming like rain. She said it was just unbelievable. There were times they'd go through mosquitoes that just was thick. It was like it was a fog in the air. Uh, losing animals from lack of water and extreme heat. She said that was a problem. She'd mentioned it as she went along. Um, she, she told us what she had to eat one night. She had a really good supper. She said they, they boiled a chicken. They had some type of soup uh, and rice and a dessert made of wine and gooseberry tarts. Hmm. So they had picked gooseberries on that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a gooseberry? I don't know. I, my grandfather used to grow them. Yeah, they're little round berries, and they're real tart, but they're real sweet. They're, they're, they're kind of unique taste, but hmm. they're really good. I think most people would taste them if they liked something tart. They, they'd especially like gooseberries. Uh, and then she talks about seeing buffalo for the first time. Those shaggy, nasty beasts, she called them. Uh, and, of course, prairie dogs. She was amused <laughs> by prairie dogs um, and how quick they were. And, and uh, of course, you can imagine we don't have those in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. Uh, she talked about a Mexican uh, worker who worked with the, the, the trail, on the trail with them, uh, that died of consumption. And uh, they buried him. They wrapped him in a blanket and buried him, and they placed a cross at his grave. So there was 
tragedy along the way. I mean, you could probably make a movie about this story. Oh, I would yeah. think would be a good one. Uh, there's a constant watch for Indians and bandits. Now, this began uh, after they crossed this uh, point we talked about earlier, and it became a 24-hour-a-day job. So you just didn't you didn't you didn't go to sleep. You had to put a watch out. You had to keep your eyes open all the time because they were they were in that part of the world. At one point, that she turned over her carriage. Uh, her and her husband had been uh, they had gotten the wheels off in a rut that gave way, um, and uh, turned over their carriage. They weren't hurt bad, but they were bruised up pretty bad. She said, uh, "You know how her husband treated her for her bruises." No. He he rubbed her face and hands and uh, bruised places with whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I was right. I took a drink of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lord, mercy. I believe he should have put it on the inside. Yeah, I mean, the he rubbed it on, it on the outside. outside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, talked of a successful hunt by the men with a good supply of meat. Um, again, you know, you you didn't have any way to preserve meat other than drying it. So what we don't think about, Brian, is you're going along the trail and you shoot an animal, so you gotta butcher it, you gotta quarter it, you gotta have it in in, in, in sizes that you can handle it, you know, pack it out on horses or mules, and then you take it to camp and then they quote dried it. Now I don't know what that pro do you know what that process involves? No. I guess you salt it, uh, to preserve it. I don't know. Yeah, that's the only thing I I mean that's the only way to preserve it then was salt, so yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the, the drying of meat was an important part of their trip. So you can imagine all the work. Just think of all the labor these people did every day. Yeah. Now, uh, I, missed, I meant to mention this in the first of the podcast, but uh, do you know how she slept and her, the way she lived on this trip? I do, because you've told me this before. Yes. So she had, actually had a tent. She had her own tent. With a bed. And had her own bed, chest of drawers. Bedroom furnishings, chairs, and carpet on the floor. <laughs> Absolutely. And a servant, Jane. And so every night that they stopped, they set up this big tent, and she slept in a bed, not on the ground, not in a wagon. Now, there was a time, and we'll talk about that in a minute, where they had a really bad storm and the tent was going to go. I mean, now this was a big tent, it had a big, huge post in the middle. And I mean, this was mm -hmm. no little, excuse me. And it, it, uh, it went down the storm, so she had to go to her servant's wagon and asked her, asked Jane, if she could sleep with her to get out of the weather. And, of course, she let her. You know, mm -hmm. she had to sleep up in a wagon. But she never slept in wagons or on the ground. She always slept in her bed, and she always had it set up just like she did. She called it her home. Wow. So, you know, even as tough as this was. They still had some luxuries. Would, of I mean, who would think that? Anybody would do that, go to that trouble, I guess. Well, how long did the total trip, well, one way make? How, how, how long did the trip one Oh, I way? can't remember. It was like three or four months, I think. So, yeah, if you, I mean, you'd want it to be as comfortable as possible. Yeah. Now, well, sometimes, Brian, they did this twice a year. Not her now, but, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, her husband, and, and they, they were used to doing this twice a year. And they would go from Independence, Missouri, to Santa Fe and back and down and back. Now, when they went down... They would take goods and load it down with wagons, mm -hmm. and then they sold everything, wagons and all, and then they'd drive cattle, buy cattle, and drive them back. So they made money going and coming. Wow. And it's just, I mean, 
and they were making money. I mean, it was amazing that, that what kind of money was being generated on this trail. The the because of the isolation of the Spanish, they had they needed goods down there. They did not have the opportunity to have the trade that we had enjoyed here in a, in our part of the world at that time. Um, we talked about successful hunts. She talks about the Sabbath on the plains. She was a very deep, uh, deeply religious uh, lady. Uh, she t- and you know, eighteen years old. She 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 talked like she was fifty. Uh, as as and as her as her life experiences, it kind of surprises you how mature she was. When we think of eighteen year olds today, I mean, when I was eighteen years old. Oh man, yeah, there was no way. You know, kids I, then at eighteen, they were graduating Harvard. You know, they right. were they were going. I mean, they were yep. different than what we have. Yeah, they today. were ex- expectations for them were much different than what they are today. She talked of the Sabbath. She talked the importance of her faith and her Creator. Uh, her parents' good raising of her and taught to be a good Christian, live in the wisdom of the Lord, and she practiced it every day. Um. We'll move on. She talked about one of the one of the another thing that she dealt with was killing the rattlesnakes on the road. She did, it 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 got to the point it just made her sick when she got around snakes. She hated snakes. I'm with her on that yep, one. We're all, we can all identify with that. Now she talks about being sick. You know, imagine this: you're on the road, just a simple something that would hit us today. We could go to the doctor, be over it maybe in 24 hours. Um. At one point, she had to see a doctor. She They went 12 miles out of the way to this fort, and there was a doctor there. And um, and she spent like eight or ten days uh, recovering from, from an illness. Um, she, she, she's on their way there. They stopped at a place called Bent's Fort, which uh, is well-known in Western history, has a, has a long history. We won't get into all that. We don't have time for that. But it was uh, she described. See, this is she could picture in her mind and and help you picture in your mind what she was seeing. She did a great job describing this fort. She said it just it was an adobe type building with unburnt bricks. And the walls were very high and thick. She said there were dirt floors. The ceilings were made of logs. It had a great good well inside a supply of water. And uh, she said it was a very comfortable. The the rooms had furniture in them and everything. But now I want to surprise you here. What do you think they had in that fort for entertainment? Mm. Probably, man, for entertainment. Pool table. Exactly. (laughs) They did. They had a billiard room, and they also had a racetrack where they raced horses. And she said she wasn't sure, but she thought they had a, a cockpit for fighting roosters uh but she said that the the soldiers gambled almost like breathing and drinking water i mean it was just almost constantly uh and she said it was the the fort was stocked with really good furniture you know each room mm-hmm. where she stayed she you know she had a bed and, and and all the comforts of a home um she said it was a it was a really a it, i think it even surprised her that how quote civilized that uncivilized place was right everything uh, writing letters to home. You wouldn't think that a person traveling like that could get letters to home, but she, there was a way that when she stopped at these forts and places, she could write letters to her family and, and let her know, you know, uh, what was going on with them and everything. Um, she talked about the mirages, and that was one of the 
things that I thought was really interesting was that she she saw these mirages in the distance, and uh, she, that she'd never seen that before. She'd never been in a country where you see mirages. Uh, she talks about the Sierra Grande Mountains. He talks of uh, there's a point there when they get closer to this rougher country. Uh, Brian, you're only making a half a mile a day. You know that's a yeah. that's that's just so, so rough. They can, just can't hardly get it. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about her brother. Uh, in closing here, um, she just finishes her trip. They make it fine. There's a lot more to this story than we have time uh, to talk about. Um, she uh, uh, also talked about, by the way, of uh, the sand being so bad in places. We don't think about things like this, but. There were places where the wagons sunk so deep in the sand that they couldn't. They had a hard time getting them to move, and you you could imagine fighting that all day long. Oh yeah. But now her brother's James McGoffin. Her brother, her brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Okay. Brother-in-law is James McGoffin. It's Samuel's brother. They had another brother with them also. His name was William. Okay. And uh, they the, the these McGoffin boys started this trade in eighteen twenty eight. Okay. So they were. Um, you know, well seasoned at doing this. Uh, sometimes they, like I said, made this trip twice a year. But on this particular trip, James went out ahead of the rest of them. Now, he was hired by the United States government to go out ahead and spy in New Mexico. And uh, he, had a, he had this secret mission. No one knew about it, but she did. Uh, Susan Shelby McGoffin knew it, and of course Samuel knew it. And he he was responsible for getting General Kearney and his men into Santa Fe without any bloodshed. President Polk wanted as much as possible to do this. He did not want, uh, he wanted to go in and take New Mexico without firing a shot. And this is the time Santa Ana was in rule of Mexico? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Susan and her husband were unaware of the nature of the business that James was undertaking. They, they, they knew he what he was doing, but they didn't know the full nature of of extent of it. And I don't think he wanted to know because it was a dangerous thing. James spoke Spanish and was in was he was the ideal person to do this because of his experience down there. He was well connected with the upper echelon of me- Mexican culture and society. And he spoke fluent Spanish, so he was he was the man, and he could be trusted by both parties. By the way, not only the U.S. government, but the Mexicans trusted him because he had evidently had good dealings with them. He was always fair, and so he had a good reputation. Uh, there was a Kentuckian by the name of William Conley who wrote a book on Quantrell, but he also wrote a book called The Bloodless Conquest, which was the story of the conquest of new mexico and in his book he he uh credits james mcgoffin as the person who made that possible because it they did take mexico without firing a shot now there was violence later but um there wasn't he they 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 had accomplished general kearney got all his troops and everything in there some 1700 men in there without firing a shot did they have any connection with the alamo um, I don't know. Okay. I do not know. Now, I, I backed up and said, is Santa Ana 
responsible for this. I'm not sure about that. Okay. I'm not sure about that. We might want to back up and punt there because you remember Santa Ana was captured later. Uh, and this was before the Mexican War. See, that was the Elmos in 1830. So, no, I don't I don't think Santa Ana had anything to do okay. with this at so this the, point. Yeah. So this was uh, post-Santa Ana? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but two Mexican politicians, though, um, well, James was captured. Uh, he was taken prisoner, uh, and sus- and was they suspicioned him of spying. Uh, but a couple of – he served like nine months in jail. Mm. Now, in her diary, Susan Shelman McGoffin, she mentions that uh, hope things work out, that she has faith in this Mexican general and so forth. So um, uh, he, he finally did get – released it, it, it you know he had lost a great deal of time and money by being in nine months in jail there but they said he lost three years worth of income for nine months in jail because of the, so anyway the government rewarded him and, it, and the bill passed in the senate to, to give him thirty thousand dollars for his losses and suffering which is to me in 1846, or that's a huge amount of money. That is a lot of but money. But it also gives us a little insight into how much money and and uh, commerce was traveling down this Santa Fe Trail. Yeah. So uh, the story kind of goes on, and she talks about uh, some of the military action and everything down there. And I didn't want to get into a lot of that because I thought uh, would be a little bit boring, but. She makes the trip successfully. They take a steamer and head back up, uh, back to Kentucky. And she goes on and lives a few years. She dies in, what was it, 1855 um, from uh, natural causes. Um, she's buried in St. Louis Cemetery uh, at Bellefontaine Cemetery. And when I was out there a couple years ago, I took a, I went and I found her grave and uh, I took a picture of it, so we'll put that on Facebook and uh, let people see. What and it one is. thing too, the the trail back was just as dangerous and fraught with just as many obstacles. I mean, coming back. Well, she what? went by steamer. See, they when they got down there, she got they she didn't come back like she went. Right. So she had come back, but yes, for the rest of them, yes, yes. Even and, the, was it the Natchez Trail and, and the Bandits and no that would have been back? they would have come back up the Santa Fe Trail the same way they went. Okay. The Natchez Trail runs from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi, so that was a separate deal and and, and uh, separate. Well, in the eighteen twenties, the steam hadn't gotten going yet, steamships, so you could go down rivers, but you couldn't come up against the current. Right. So that's why they usually came back land. But if you look at the, the, the way the United States is, you know, the geography of that region of the Santa Fe Trail through there, that's the over, overland is about the only way you could get there. There's no streams that will take you directly, you know, to that destination very easily. So the overland route was the still the best way to go until the invention of steam and, and trains. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History of the South. Uh, to find out more about our podcast and keep up with what we're doing, follow Uncommon History of the South on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure you subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast listening app. And if you listen to us on iTunes, please leave a five-star review and, and a comment in the comment section. This will help others find our podcast and help, we grow, help us grow. This podcast is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford. 